Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pod of thunder and rock and roll and the only place you can hear the Duff McKagan joke of the week. Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan here. You ever think of this? I'm in sunny Seattle, by the way. Ever think of this? Shaquille O'Neal can never end a message like a message to his wife or family with love Shaq because the B-52s already took that. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Oh, that one was terrible. I don't know if I can give that one a courtesy. I give him a courtesy laugh for uh, effort. Uh, Duff Classic, though, for all the wrong reasons. But we love him for never missing a Friday. What other Rock and Roll Hall of Famer is going to take the time to call in jokes for us for the last three years every single week? Thanks to my friend and my joke hero, Duff McKagan. And thanks to all you guys for checking out the Winnipeggers. Episode 4, High School Parties, came out last night on YouTube and Facebook. And if you want to see and hear... Uh, the letter I wrote to Dave Spivak right after I moved to Calgary. You got to check it out back in 1990. Uh, no smartphones back then, no texting, no email, long distance phone calls. They didn't have the money for that. Wrote letters. Uh, this one's a good one. Very insulting. You also hear some great stories about the one high school party that Dave threw, parties that Ribo, Ribo threw, and the part one party I had where I told my mom that there was only 10 people there when in reality there was over 200. So great stories from our high school years. The Winnipeggers, new episodes on Thursday nights at 9 Eastern. Uh, don't forget about Saturday night at 9 Eastern, Facebook Live and YouTube for the Saturday night special. We're back full on form. We're going to have a sing-along again. Bring your favorite beverage, your questions, and your song requests. Uh, going to have some fun together at home. Right now, it's a special episode of Talk is Jericho. Conrad Thompson, the podcasting guru from Something uh, to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard, Grilling JR, 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Uh, Tony Schiavone show. He's taking over hosting duties today so we can talk about my first few years in WWE. This episode is actually recorded as a rebuttal to the something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard about the early years of Y2J. Theirs was called 20 Years of Jericho. It came out last August and I wanted to rebut that, rebut it. I wanted to clarify and set the record straight about some of the stories that Bruce told in that episode. So I had Conrad come on and interview me about those same early years in WWE. So we cover everything from my debut to the first promos I cut on The Rock and The Undertaker to my angle of China, the arrival of Eddie Guerrero, Chris Benoit, and Perry Saturn uh, to when I won the Indisputed Championship uh, when I beat The Rock and Steve Austin on the very same night. So Conrad Thompson plays host for this special Talk is Jericho episode about my early years as Y2J in WWE. Right, so I'm on the phone with uh, Conrad Thompson, who uh, always great to talk to and always does awesome shows. And much like we did last year when you had Eric Bischoff talking about the kind of the early WCWs of Chris Jericho, we did a little bit of a rebuttal. We're now going to do the same uh, for the show that you just did with uh, with Bruce Pritchard. And you've been holding on to that idea of doing that show for a long time, you told me. Yeah, absolutely. We wanted to do it on the exact 20-year anniversary and when I was first sort of researching topics, you know, very early in our something to wrestle run, I realized, hey, wait a minute, that's on a Friday. So we, we kept it in our back pocket. And <laughs> last month we did it on the exact 20 year anniversary. And I uh, I didn't expect that my uh, phone would light up with all kinds of rebuttals from you. So I'm excited to be here <laughs> to uh, talk about it. Well, once again, it's always uh, and they aren't, you know, there's always three sides to every story, yours, mine and the truth. So I love hearing Bruce's recollections of kind of the, the first few years of my WWE experience in comparing them with mine. So it's just kind of fun to kind of go through it and, and see what the differences are, uh, especially on some of the opinions. And because Bruce now, especially like you don't have to comment on this, but now that he works with WWE, he's very 
bro WWE constantly. And some of that stuff is kind of like, come on, dude. You know that you're not telling the truth on that one. Well, what I was really intrigued about was the very first thing that you texted me, which was about how you came into the company. And I didn't realize that this was the case, but apparently when they were passing out all those silly gimmicks for sort of the underneath guys like Freddie Joe Floyd and Sal Sincere, one of the suggestions was that you come in as one of those characters for Mr. Jim Cornette. I had never heard that story. Yeah, it's funny because when we were working in uh, Smoky Mountain Wrestling, Lance and I, uh, that was 94. Yeah, it was summer of 94. At one point, I remember hearing that there was an offer to Jimmy to bring in a tag team to work with the Bushwhackers on uh, some house shows. Like some, Somebody dropped out of a loop, so they wanted a team, and he suggested us. I was unfortunately booked in Japan, and you know it's one of those things where you think, oh, it's the it's the only chance we're ever going to get to work in WWE. Not that us versus the Bushwhackers would have been a technical classic, but you know I bet you we could have had some fun with it. But anyway, so I never had any opportunities to go to the WWE ever. And then after I finished up with Smoky Mountain, I was working in ECW and working uh, in Japan. And I got a call from Jimmy and he said, hey, uh, we're doing this new thing now. He was in the WWE working at the time. Smoky Mountain had closed. And he was saying that we're doing this new thing. We're bringing in guys. They all have gimmicks and characters, but they're not necessarily going to get a push. They're, they're kind of like, you know, um, he didn't say it in this term, but basically highlighted jobbers. You know, um, Vince must have said that we don't want no name jobbers anymore. Every Everybody should have a gimmick in my company. So we're going to have, you know, gimmick jobbers. Now, Jimmy never told me who or what the idea was, because right off the bat, I said, it's not something I'm interested in doing. You know, at the time I had kind of refocused and said, I'm going to do ECW. And I was kind of following uh, Chris and Eddie and those guys. So I thought, well, I'll see if I'm going to get to the WWE, I'll get there. But I don't want to go there as kind of a, you know, a, a spotlight jobber. So when they started and you mentioned a few of them, Freddie Joe Floyd, that was uh, Tracy Smothers. Right. And then there was Salvatore Sincere. There was T.L. Hopper, which was uh, Dirty White Boy. Both <laughs> both uh, Smoky Mountain alumni. And then there was the Pug, who was kind of like, I guess, uh, an amateur wrestler. And the other one was the Goon, if people remember, the, the hockey player guy that was played by uh, Steve Irwin from Texas, who probably had never been on hockey skates in his life. And... I'm like convinced and it doesn't take much to figure out, oh, they totally wanted me to be the goon. Like there's no way when they're putting together these ideas, I know a perfect guy, Jericho, he could be the goon. That's amazing. You know, what could have been, man? Who would have thought, right? Well, it's funny because I brought that up on, a, I was on a, a jet with Vince and Kevin Dunn one time flying somewhere and I brought that up and Kevin Dunn was howling. He goes, no, there's no way. I'm like, dude, you have, you have no idea. He goes, well, no, I don't. But I just remember how that character was so bad. And Vince didn't even remember. He remembered the goon, but didn't remember who it was. I was like, you guys had this poor guy wearing wrestling boots that were cut away to look like hockey skates. It was awful, awful, awful. It was awful. But, of course, we know that when you finally debuted, you come in under much different circumstances. We've talked about that on your show before. Right. You count down. You interrupt the Rocks promo. And it feels like you're going to be you know, up for some big stuff, especially after such a big debut. And then you don't exactly go on a winning streak. And Bruce would defend that on the podcast. And I'm sure that probably got you a little hot under the collar, the way you were booked when you first came in. Well, you mentioned it. Like we, we did a show last year, you and I, talking about kind of the circumstances leading up to the debut of Y2J. But we never talked about 
you know, from the moment I walked out of the curtain until after. So it's perfect because we are basically leaving off, uh, starting up where we left off. But um, it's weird to me. And I just spoke to Vince Russo about this. When I came into the company, I was brought in by Vince Russo. And he was kind of, you know, he was my, not my protector, but I think he was kind of my biggest fan. You know, he, he was the cheerleader for Jericho. And then it wasn't two months later before he left and quit and went to WCW. And I think when he left, I was one of the scapegoats of, of Russo leaving. Like, okay, well, you know, screw Russo and this Jericho kid. We're sick of him talking about, let's, let's just, you know, stick it to him as well. Not stick it to me, but obviously I wasn't as planned or pushed as I was beforehand. So, um, yeah, what people don't remember is I came in with some pomp and circumstance for a few weeks doing interviews. I started out doing the famous one with The Rock. The next night we were in Milwaukee, I did a, a promo on The Undertaker. And then I think SummerSlam, I did a promo on Road Dog. And then um, I got a couple basic wins. I beat Road Dog on, on the first SmackDown and a few other things. But, but basically what Russo told me is the night he quit – uh, or, or left when we were in Nassau Coliseum and the, and the TV that he had written for that week was Rock versus Jericho with Jericho going over. Now, I don't remember if that's true or not. I'm sure fans can go look it up and see what was the TV main event the week that Russo went to WCW. But if that's true, because I remember the first time I wrestled The Rock, he beat me clean, basically in the middle of the ring. And that's when, you know, <laughs> all the real losses started coming in to where I was losing to... D'Lo Brown on Sunday Night Heat and Gangrel and uh, it just it just it felt like I came in with so much steam that something had to have happened to just turn it all around and I would propose that was probably it because I hadn't even had a, really a match yet by the time Russo left to show if I was good or bad or not I think they just turned the tables on me after he left it's weird because you know you wind up having your first match with Road Dog and then you're feuding with someone else from DX and it's X-Pac and he beats you at your first pay-per-view unforgiven, but then they just slide you over to somebody else in DX. And you know, I don't know how Bruce could defend this, but you're wrestling China, not just as a one-off, but in a bit of a feud. And, and you said there was even some, maybe some backstage issues with you and Vince over your matches with China. Yeah. I mean, now that you just put it that way, I mean, there was a huge target on my back when I came in. Cause if you remember, Big Show was the first kind of uh, jump from from WCW to, to WWE, and I was the next one. And, and Show and I weren't great friends at the time, not that we had any heat. We just didn't really know each other very well. And I didn't have anybody. Like, I didn't have any friends or, you know, you're, you have guys that you're friends with, but not guys that you've been through the wars with or watching each other's backs and stuff. So when I came in... Uh, like the Monday night wars were, were real. Like that was something that, that all the guys were really behind. And when I came in by myself, this, you know, good looking guy with long blonde hair, also super confident in his promos where I come in and bury the rock, which, yeah, you know, it's, but then I buried the undertaker huge the next night, but that was kind of what my role was. I was the millennium man, and I, millennium man. And I was there to, save the WWE. And I remember the, the time with Undertaker, I said something along the lines of, you know, I, I just interrupted your super boring promo and he just had happened to be doing a super boring promo. So when I came out and said it, 
instead of getting the heat, I got a super reaction because he was telling this really boring story about <laughs> him and Big Show in the desert and Show got bit by a scorpion, so he carried Undertaker on his motorcycle out of the desert. Like, what are you talking about? And I remember, like, Shawn Michaels was around in Austin, too, and they said, you know, you know, for future reference, you might not want to call, you know, the biggest name in the company boring next time. And I was like, ah, but meanwhile, realized that they were giving me a little bit of a, of a heads up, like, hey, you piece of shit, watch what you're saying. So right off the bat, like you said, I came in, I lost to, I worked with Rojog, but then I lost to X-Pac, and then they put me in there with China, and China was the week after Russo left, because that's, that's when it really started. And um, I worked with her three pay-per-views in a row, and I'll never forget the night in Detroit for the Intercontinental Championship it was me versus China, and they put her over on me, and I just couldn't believe that they would do that. Like, really? I came in with so much steam, and now you're having me lose to, to China, and Vince had even asked me beforehand, like, I'm going to have you work with China. You don't have any aversions to working with a woman, do you? And I said, no, I mean, not at all. I mean, if this is what you want, and obviously they were pushing her as more than just a woman, then let's do it. I just couldn't believe that they put me over on her or put her over on me, but they did. And I think that we had a really good match that night. Problem was the crowd didn't buy the fact that she beat me uh, and they booed her. And that was a real big problem that they booed China. So then the word is around, I don't know how to be a heel. And then we worked another time uh, the next month in December. And we had some sort of a, 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 I don't even remember, it was some kind of a miscommunication where I ended up kicking her in the face or giving her a shot in the face or something like that. And she had a black eye. And it wasn't even a big one. It was a small black eye. And I remember Vince telling me, he's like, you know, like, you don't think you have to go easy with her just because she's a woman. I want you to work like you usually work. And the next day I got called to Vince's office after the pay-per-view and I thought, He's probably calling me in there to wish me, uh, you know, to tell me that I did a good job. I go into this room and it's me and it's Vince, Jim Ross, and Jack Lanza. And Vince goes off on me. You know, how could you hit a woman? How could you hit a woman? You gave her a black eye. And, you know, you, the, the problem is you're just not any good. You're not worth the contract. You're not worth the paper that your contract was printed on. And, uh, you know, you're the drizzling shits. And, you know, all that's you're as green as goose shit I've been, I've been sold a bill of goods and i was just like what of course i didn't say anything but i'm thinking to myself like did you not see the match we had yesterday it's the best match he's ever had and that was totally uh you know obviously i think the dx guys more specifically hunter were in vince's ear and and, and vince had heard enough and had enough and decided to just flip out on me and tell me how, how shitty i was and how how bad i was do you think that Hunter was doing that from a, hey, I want to defend my girl standpoint or, hey, let's get this guy out of the way? We talked about it a few years ago when Hunter did my show. And it's funny, as you grow older, you kind of sit there and go like, it's like Guns N' Roses when Axel and Slash finally get back together. And they're like, why are we so mad at each other again? Why did we hate each other so much? You're like, I don't know. And I think, you know, like I mentioned, the Monday Night Wars were real. I think when I came in, I had a big target already because I got a guaranteed contract. Everybody knew it. That wasn't really prevalent at the time. And then just by the way I portrayed myself, which was a lot with a lot of confidence, uh, they didn't like it, you know? And, and it wasn't arrogance. It was very nice backstage. I asked, I remember one time I saw Triple H. He said, if you ever need any help or any directions or, or anything, just give me a call. And I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. The guy's a pretty, pretty good guy. So I was lost somewhere in San Jose and I called him. And he's like, yeah. 
I go, hey, it's uh, Chris Jericho. Yeah. Um, I'm lost. How do you get to uh, to San Francisco to the Cow Palace? How do you get there? You buy a f- map. Ah, ha, ha, ha. I hear them all laughing and then he hangs up on me. And I'm like, well, <laughs> that didn't go very good. Um, so I just think they decided they didn't like me. And then there was this kind of underlying theme of just wanting to get rid of me, like you said. And I remember Vince told me that night, like, you're going to work with X-Pac. It was in Tampa on Raw. If you don't have a good match tonight, you're fired. That's what he said. And I was like, okay. And thinking like, that's a lot of pressure. And it's also leaving it completely up to X-Pac. Like if he sandbagged me or wanted to have a shitty match, he could have. And I would have been gone, according to Vince, right? Did you ever have a conversation with him after the fact about that? Because he had a reputation for pulling out the best matches and guys. But at that point, Paranora being what it is in wrestling, you probably need to wonder, right? Well, I had known Sean from Japan. and Not well, but we'd worked together. And yeah, I felt he was a little bit of a kindred spirit, you know, kind of a small guy in a big man's world. And obviously, I knew him from WCW as well. And, um, you know, I, 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 I thanked him. Because we had a good match. Because X-Pac, listen, he's a great performer. There's no doubt about it. And he did know the, the the mythical WWE style, which there is such a thing. I didn't know it when I came in, nor did anybody try and tell me. So Sean went out of his way to tell me that. And we have talked about it. He actually apologized to me a few years ago for being, you know, a dick at that time. It's like, you know, it's just a, it was a pack mentality, a gang mentality. Here comes the new kid to school. Let's, let's, let's kill him. Let's bury him. And, that's kind of what DX's MO was at the time. And the only thing that saved me is I had nine years of experience. I knew that no matter how much I got buried, I could always work my way out of it because I knew how to work and I wasn't an asshole. Even if I was portrayed that way at first, it's going to take me a while to prove myself, but I'm not going anywhere, you know, and, and it, if he's not going to fire me, I know that because he paid too much money to bring me in. So I think what it was, I remember I talked to Benoit about it and Benoit told Brett, and Brett said, Vince is like a, like a drill sergeant when you first come in from boot camp. He wants to tear you down and rip you apart and then build you up in his own image. Uh, and that's kind of what, what he did in a lot of ways. Well, the, uh, the critics really liked your match with China at Armageddon. You said that you thought it was China's best match. Meltzer said it was actually the best match on the show. And uh, he said that was a real credit to Jericho because China was really exposed with her bad-looking offense. So... He was very complimentary of you there. And the next time you'd have a pay-per-view match, it's Royal Rumble 2000. And again, you're in there with China, but this time Bob Holly added to the mix as well. Uh, what's up with that? What's up with, uh, instead of having a trilogy of matches with China, now we're going to slide Bob Holly in there. Is that welcome or is that more challenging as a performer? Because there's three people to look forward to two. Honestly, it's strictly business. I think uh, so China retained the, the Intercontinental Championship against me. Then I beat her for it at Armageddon, like you said. And I didn't realize that he thought it was the best match of the show. So that shows you I'm not making it up. Then then Royal Rumble, I think they just they wanted me to retain, but they didn't want me to beat her twice. That's probably a little bit of a political thing. So they put Bob in there. And Bob was always like, you might not think of it now, but Bob was always marginally higher mid-card, lower main event because he was really talented. He was really good. And he was strong and believable. And I loved working with Bob Hawley because he would beat the shit out of you, which I don't have a problem with. And I would do the same to him. So it was actually kind of good to have him in the match. It, it, it shook it up a bit and also gave me somebody to beat where China didn't have to take the fall. We can't talk about January 2000 without talking about 
your friends jumping over. You know, Eddie Guerrero comes over, Dean Malenko comes over, Perry Saturn comes over. And I don't think that, you know, maybe a few months prior, this would have been as big of a deal because it just would have felt like you guys all came together. But you were sort of in there a few months ahead of time. When they get there, are you excited to see them? Or are you giving them a heads up that, hey, this shit ain't the roses we thought it was? Or what's the feeling when all your friends join you in January 2000? Well, obviously, very excited because I had you know had my had my boys back, and I've been riding with Edge and Christian because we knew each other a little bit from the old school Winnipeg days. But it was good just to have them there, and and they had to go through the same thing that I had to go through, which was this rite of passage. I remember the first night, the very first night they came in, uh, it was Vince versus or sorry, Hunter versus Benoit, and they put Hunter over, and they put you know X Pac over on Malenko or whatever it was. Like every guy that that worked, the, the, they lost, you know. And that's just how the way Vince does things is, is you have to prove yourself to him. And, you know, think about that, Conrad. They had Benoit coming in, who was the uncrowned WCW champion. I think his last match, if you recall, they put him over on Sid and he just walked out. Like, that's it. He yep. said, don't put me over. No, we're doing it. As if giving him the title was going to make him stay. And then he left. And they he left the, the, the WCW champion. And the first night in... You know, WCW versus WWE, and they just have him win, you know, 10 minutes on Raw, end of story. So I think they were a little bit confused. I know Eddie had called me a few times beforehand to ask me what I thought about WWE. And, and you know, at the time, we hated WCW. It was not the right place for us. It wasn't that WWE was that much better at the start, but it sure could be if you worked your way up the ladder. For me, and think about the Radicals, too. Our introductions were great. When the Radicals came down out of the crowd, they're in the front row and they looked like a million bucks. And it was just it was just a really cool vibe. And um, I believe their first match was a 10-man tag or something that did a huge rating. But once again, once you get the rating, once you do the Jericho countdown clock against The Rock and bring in the, the Radicals and a 10-man tag against Hunter and this and other thing, then the dust settles and then you really have to earn your keep. And that's when all of us had to kind of run the gauntlet and go through WWE almost uh, initiation, like like Animal House. Well, before you get to work with your buddy Benoit, you wind up working with uh, Kurt Angle, and he's still trying to sort of find his way. What do you remember about uh, your matches with Kurt? You did a, a match at No Way Out, and then I think there's the uh, the three-way with you guys and Chris Benoit at WrestleMania, right? Yeah, and Kurt's like Eddie for me. He's a guy I didn't work with much in WWE. Uh, I worked with him a lot at the start, especially on house shows. We worked a ton of house shows together. Uh, and this is Kurt's basically his first year in the business working in main events. He was such a natural and he was so good. And he was just learning about who he was. And I remember being super impressed because the first time Kurt was ever had a match, uh, they'd promoting him as a babyface, integrity, intelligence, and intensity. And he went to the ring and they were, like I said, promoting him like he was going to be a babyface. And people were booing him because they didn't want the white meat baby face sort of thing. They didn't, they weren't buying it. And Vince told him halfway through, like, okay, uh, go to the ringside, grab a microphone and turn yourself heel. And you're talking to a guy in his first pay-per-view uh, in his first, you know, real month of the business with WWE. And he, he, he went and did it and didn't miss a beat. And I was like, that's a natural, like to do that sort of a thing on your first match and then cut a great heel promo during you know the middle of everything that he didn't plan out he just knew he was going to be great and he was right off the bat great character easy to work nice guy can't say enough about uh, about kurt angle how, how great he was 
Well, it's got to be a big deal growing up a lifelong WWF fan and you finally get to WrestleMania. But instead of it being a one-on-one match, it's a three-way. At least one of them is your buddy and, and the other is a natural and Kurt Angle. Are you disappointed that your first WrestleMania was a three-way? Excited? What's the emotion going into your first big show like that? I was disappointed. You know, I, I was disappointed um, because originally you you can even, even see the posters. Uh, the original posters was... Jericho, Big Show, Rock, and Triple H with a McMahon in every corner. That was the, the gimmick of the. That was the gimmick of the show. But the poster originally was the four of us. And then after a couple weeks, <laughs> I'm gone and McFoley is in. And it was very strange to me that I was in it and taken out. Now they were saying, okay, it's probably just, uh, you know, probably just a, a clerical error or. Just a coincidence, but come on, dude. It's no coincidence. Who's on the WrestleMania poster advertising WrestleMania? And there's four names on it, and the main event is a four way match, right? So, you know, at some point, I was uh, scheduled to be in that. So, when I was taken out, and no one really told me anything, uh, it kind of was, was a bummer to me. And then being put in the three way was cool, but I remember the way they did it was Benoit won the Intercontinental Championship first. And then I won the European Championship second. I think that's how they did it. It just it didn't really make sense to me how, how why they would do it that way. Um, but it, it it was a little bit of a downer. I remember the match didn't really click. I thought it was okay, but it didn't really work out too well. I just thought it was a little bit awkward that both of Kurt's titles were at stake and he didn't lose either one, which is funny, but Chris pins me for one and I pin Chris for another one. We both walk out of those champions. It's one of those cutesy rules that the WWE does that doesn't really make sense when you really think about it. It was weird. It was uh, even received weird. And the Meltzer said this was technically the best wrestling on the show, but it didn't have much heat. But the wrestling from all three was well below the standard you'd expect from them. I don't know if it was nerves or a reaction to the dead crowd, and it was good, but you'd expect great in this setting. When you guys are through, you know, three obvious first ballot Hall of Famers, are all three of you disappointed in the match, to the best of your recollection? Kurt and Chris were disappointed in almost every match they ever had. It's just how they were, super self-critical. But you know it when you come out of the ring. Like I said, I've never watched it back, but when you mentioned that match to me, I remember I actually, like I said, I could be wrong, but if, if Chris won the IC title first and then I won the European title. I remember I, I wanted it to, to get flip-flopped because the Intercontinental Championship should be the most important one. And for whatever reason, it was just out of order. It didn't make sense to me. And I, I remember thinking, yeah, like it, it, it just, it was okay. It, it could have been better, but you're going basically like a two-fall match with three guys. For, you know what I mean? Like it's two separate belts. It's two separate falls. I just... I didn't get it, I guess. I don't think the crowd really did either. That might have added to the fact that it was a little bit dead and also combined it with the fact that I was supposed to be in the main event originally. I just don't have great memories about that about that WrestleMania. You're right, though. Benoit pins you first after the uh, diving headbutt. and He wins the Intercontinental, and the European title, for whatever reason, was not nearly as important as the Intercontinental title. So maybe you know fans just weren't as interested in that or the rules were hard to follow or whatever. But right. It doesn't matter because the next night you lose the European Championship to your other pal, Eddie Guerrero. And this time it's when China turns on you and goes with Eddie. Uh, that seems like something you would have enjoyed at least. Well, let me tell you a couple quick things. First of all, I actually read, uh, read the text that we sent back and forth before. And first of all, 
uh, when you asked Bruce if I ever got ribbed in the locker room, and he said, well, I know they hit his boots. Like, no one ever hid my boots. That's just Bruce making up some kind of a shitty rib. <laughs> like, so my boots never got hit, and I never got ribbed uh, in the WWE locker room. I just wanted to say that. The other thing was that you forgot to mention with Bruce was when Vince had me and China be the co-champions, the co-intercontinental champions which to me is still the worst idea I've ever had I've ever had to be involved with. And how this came to be was it was another match between me and China. The typical, you know, you go to give a guy a German suplex and it's a one, two, three, and either guy gets their shoulders up and the refs are arguing because this ref saw China. Sh- oh no, it was one, two, three. We both raised our shoulder at the same time, right? So referee number one is looking at China's shoulder being up. Referee number two is looking at my shoulder being up and they're both arguing back and forth. And then they decide, well, it's not a draw. They're now the co-intercontinental championships champions. And I remember saying to Vince, like, it doesn't make any sense. And why would you put us together? Because I had smashed China's thumb with a hammer. And like, you know, we had a little bit of a, of a blood feud. And he's like, look at you, two, two good looking people. People want to see you together. And it was like, no, they don't. And I don't want to see us together. It's like, you know, if people, sometimes you see a bad on-screen couple with no chemistry whatsoever, that was right. that was us. And we weren't supposed to be romantically linked, but we had no, we had nothing in common. It was terrible. We didn't like each other. And to make us co-champions was so bad. Like, some days she would defend the title. Some days I would defend the title. And when I defended the title, she was in my corner helping me to win. When she was defending, I was in her corner helping her to win. Guess what? We're baby faces. It's ridiculous. It made no sense. Yeah, but a lot of things about that era didn't always make sense. What do you think, though, about, uh, you know, the pairing of John and Eddie Guerrero? Obviously going to be a much bigger hit than the pairing of of Chris Jericho and China. Dropping the belt to your old pal the day after WrestleMania. That's got to be a fun day, huh? Well, I mean, I, you know, I liked it the, the most because I didn't really want to be the European champion. I didn't really feel that, that was a belt that was worthy. And I just wanted to get away from China. So when they had him beat me for it, I was like, thank you, thank you, thank you. She's his problem now. Uh, once again, the reason why Eddie is a million times better than me in any way, shape, or form is he actually made it work with her and got over huge. That's where the whole Latino heat thing started. And he right. just he jumped right into it, man. Like, Whatever aversions she had with me was probably caused by DX and Hunter. There wasn't that with Eddie. I think they found Eddie to be harmless. And I know when they first brought the, the, the radicals in, I wanted to do something with Chris. And, 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 and right from the bat, right from the bat, Vince, uh, the writers told me that Vince sees Eddie as the real star of the four of them. And I was like, Eddie, really? Like more than Chris? And, and this is going to sound weird now, but at the time, more than Perry Saturn? Yep, he says Eddie's the one. And he sure proved it with the whole China thing. And, and he was able to make it work with her uh, in a way that I never could. Let's talk about um, the match on April 17th on Raw. You would pin Triple H in a world title match, and the referee, Earl Hebner, would make a quote-unquote fast count and the title. And then later, of course, Hebner would reverse the decision due to some pressure from Triple H and even to this day, WWE doesn't acknowledge the switch. When did you find out about that night's creative? Uh, it's great. So I, I, the week before on Saturday or Sunday night main event, whatever it's called, they had me lose to Viscera. 
it's actually a famous moment because I put Viscera on the walls of Jericho, which was uh, quite the spectacle visually. But they had me lose to Viscera, and I was like, you know, at the end of that match, I walked out. I was like, you know what? I'm done. You know, I'm going back there next week, and I'm going to go talk to Vince, and I'm just going to tell him I'm finished because if this is what they brought me in to start losing to to Big Vis on a you know a jobber show like Sunday Night Heat or whatever the hell it was, it's like there's no future for me here. So, and this is nothing personal against Vis, just Vis Viscera, but where you look at where he is on the card in comparison to where I was brought in at, it just wasn't working. So I get into town and it's, it's uh, State College, Pennsylvania. And I'm walking down the hallway and I'm pissed. Like I'm, I've been working myself up all week and now I'm ready to just let it out. I'm walking down the hall and I see one of the writers. His name was Tommy Blancha. And uh, he was, I think he works for, uh, what's the, Metopolis or Metal, whatever, that cartoon, the heavy metal cartoon that everyone loves. He was standing there and he said, Chris, what's going on? I was like, oh, nothing. I'm going to go talk to Vince. He goes, well, let me tell you what you're doing tonight first. I said, I don't really care what I'm doing. Like, I've had enough of this place. I'm going to tell Vince that, you know, I want I want out. And he's like, well, you're going to want to hear what I'm doing. I said, I don't care what I'm doing. It doesn't matter what I'm doing because you're winning the world title. I said, wow, you better tell me what I'm doing then. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, are you kidding me? And he's like, no, like, here's what we're going to do. We're doing the story. And um, like you just explained, you know, you'll, you'll pick a fight with Hunter and you'll pick a fight with Stephanie and then you'll do the match and you'll win and then you'll have to give it back. And at the time I was like, like whatever you want, like, this is great. And I remember feeling a little bit weird about having to just give the title back. Right. Right. So I asked Vince about that. And this point in time, like my conversations with Vince were very, like he's an intimidating guy. He's hard to really get to know until you get to know him. And then it's the easiest conversations. But at the time I was still very scared of him, but I went to talk to him. I said, Vince, like I really feel weird about, about just giving the belt back. Like what's the mindset? He's like, it's just the story for tonight. And he said, you're going to have it again anyways, so don't worry about it. Just take it, do it, and 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 go from there. And I was like, he said, I'm going to get it again? Like, really? You know, is that, was he serious? So we we have this this match. And I, I, at the time, I'd been arguing with Stephanie, which was getting over huge. So the night started with me cutting this wicked promo. And Stephanie, Hunter gets involved. Uh, he wants to beat me up. He sends his thugs after me, but I got, you know, an APA who I've hired they start the match, and he had done some stuff with Earl Hebner a couple weeks before where Earl was mad at him, and we had a killer match. It was a great, great match, and uh, it was probably the, the first great match I ever had in WWE, and more importantly, when I won the title, the crowd exploded, and you guys can go back and watch it on YouTube. You'll see legit explosion of the crowd like we don't see anymore, not just because it was me, but it was a different time, and when the young challenger that no one expected to win actually won... They went nuts for it. So it was funny because then, of course, I go back for a commercial break and I got to give the title back. But for that 15-minute period, it was like, you know, Jericho Mania running wild, brother. Well, Jericho Mania would come to an end because uh, you're going to go on a bit of a losing streak after this. A backlash, Chris Benoit would get a win over you. Uh, at, at Judgment Day, he would beat you again. This time in a submission match. At King of the Ring, you would lose to Kurt Angle. You do a last man standing match at Fully Loaded. Triple H wins that one. It starts to feel like at this point, if Chris Jericho's on pay-per-view, uh, he's not getting the hand raise. Yeah, it was, it, it, and just one more thing about the title match that I won. People forget that I beat Hunter, had to give the title back, and then later on the main event was a six-man whatever, and I lost to Hunter again. So, you know, I beat him, 
won the title, gave the title back, and then they beat me again in the six-man. So they just kept doing that. And when Bruce was kind of explaining, well, well, of course he's in a main event match and he loses. Well, that's a burial. Well, it is a burial, especially when you're a baby face. And I'm not saying it was done on purpose. I think it was more just, well, you know, Jericho can lose. He's still popular. And not realizing that it was losing after losing after losing. Or maybe they did realize it. I know I sure did. I remember I went to Vince once. I had a cage match with Regal probably around this time frame. Maybe not. It was on TV. And I said to him, like, because I was supposed to lose. And I'm like, Vince, like, I just want to point this out to you. I'm not being a, a mark, but I haven't won on Raw in 10 weeks. And I've had a match every week. So what's your point? I'm like, I'll say it again. I've lost 10 matches in a row as a babyface on Raw. It's not how you build somebody. And, you know, you can always get over by losing, but right. you got to win sometimes. You really do. If you don't win the big one once in a while, we did a whole storyline with it when I worked with The Rock. If you don't win the big one, you'll never be taken seriously. And then you just become, you know, an upper mid-card job guy. And I just... I don't know why they did that. Um, I'm not sure what they were trying to prove. Once again, you got a guy who is over to the point where there was a riot when he won the title and then punished me by making me lose a lot more. I don't know if it was a personal thing, but there was definitely someone who was still out to get me that didn't believe that I could that I could get there. You finally get your hand raised at Unforgiven. You get a win over X-Pac. You do it again in a cage match at No Mercy. You get another win there. And then you start a feud with Kane. And this is a bit of a departure. Uh, up until this point, you've been working with guys closer to your size. Now you've got a real monster. You guys have a match at the Survivor Series. And of course, Kane gets the win there. But you would do a rematch at Armageddon. And you win the last man standing match. What do you remember about working with Kane? And, and what was that like all that time ago? Well, I mean, like you mentioned, you know, like beforehand about, about losing. And, and a lot of times... Like, there's really no reason for it. Like when you mentioned the last man standing that Hunter and I had, which was another great match, like a really, really great match, like match of the year type at the time. And, you know, he wins, right? He gets up at nine. Uh, I get up at 10, but he wins. It's like, what difference would it have made if we reversed it? And Hunter got up at, at 10 and I got up at nine. Like there comes a point when you got to give somebody a, a little shove, a little bone, especially with a guy like Hunter, it wouldn't have hurt him at all. So, I didn't get it. And then I just really, by the time I started working with Kane, when loses or draws, I just liked working with him because he's such an easy guy to work with. Like there's no politics and there's no second guessing and there's no backstabbing. He's just, you know, he's a big giant guy, but he's definitely got a heart of gold. He's very, very nice. He's super smart. So I don't remember those matches being great, but I remember we had fun with them because we, we just wanted to, to work together. So it was kind of really refreshing for me when we lose or draw to work with somebody that I didn't feel had an entire agenda behind the scenes about me. Let me ask, when you say an entire agenda, are you talking about laying out a match or other stuff? Can you sort of compare and contrast putting a match together with Kane versus the Triple H in this era? No, because uh, Triple H, the matches that we had were always great. If you look at it, like he was, he was a great worker, just the finishes, like the agenda of like, well, it's the last man standing, which is a gimmick match, which to me, if you're a, a top guy and you're working with a guy that's on his way up, you do matches like cage matches and last man standing matches. And, you know, to, to a certain extent, ladder matches, you're doing matches where somebody doesn't have to get pinned. 
And a last man standing match is I, 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 is, is perfectly booked for Jericho to beat Hunter because, well, he never pinned me. He never really beat me. He just stood up earlier than I did. Big deal. Like, a heel can play off that. And it just really confused me why there was that agenda. With Kane, I never felt that. I mean, putting together matches with, with him was easy. But, you know, if he's supposed to win, it's because he's supposed to win. If I'm supposed to win, he's not going to go behind my back and politic to Vince that I should, should lose. And I'm not saying anybody did that. But if you look at the track record there for a guy they brought in with a lot of steam that then went down the hill because I got, you know, a, a jobbed out. Maybe I wasn't as good as I thought I was. But at this point in time, I'd work myself back up into a respect position. Like, listen, I went through it. You know I'm good. You know what I can do. So when it's storyline-wise smart for me to win, then let, then I should win. There was still the politics of like, well, that's fine. He can win, but he can never beat me or he can never beat him. And that's not how you build somebody, uh, especially someone that they were expecting to be in a main event spot because I was headlining most of the house shows because we were doing B crews and A crews. So you'd have a Sunday show and there'd be an A crew in Stockton and a B crew in Sacramento. And there'd be a strong headliner for A and a strong headliner for B. I was the headliner of that B every single time with Kurt, with Kane, you name it. So obviously they were grooming me for this position, but just not booking me in, in, in that way. And that, it was very, it bothered me after a while. When we're talking about sort of behind the scenes and putting matches together and things like that, we've heard as fans for a long time that Arn Anderson was sort of John Cena's go-to agent. Did Triple H have a go-to agent in that era that always helped lay out his matches or would campaign one way or another? Well, back then at that time frame, Pat Patterson did most of the main event matches and he was kind of bringing in Michael Hayes as his protege. Uh, I loved working with Pat because Pat was the one agent that wouldn't get his feelings hurt if he didn't like his ideas. And that's one of the things, it's one of the reasons why I, I made it as far as I have, but it's also one of the reasons why I had so much heat when I first came in. I will respectfully decline any idea that I don't think is better than mine. And I don't think all my ma my ideas are better. Some of them are, some of them not, but just because guy A had been working for 15 years and he's an agent and tells me that this is the finish and my finish is better, I'll fight for it. Sometimes guys get their feelings hurt. Pat never did. Pat would be like, okay, well, you like this? Well, I like that. Okay, well, I like that and you like this and then you like that and I like this and suddenly we have a great match. It's like songwriting. He comes up with an idea. I come up with an idea. You put the ideas together and you got something cool. A lot of agents at that point in time were angry if you had an idea and just wanted you to do whatever they said to do, which a lot of times was like, you know, roll them up and pull the tights. I'm like, again, for the 800th time on this show tonight, let's think of something better. And um, Pat was the guy that I that I think at, at a certain point in time, everyone else just said, we can't work with this guy. You work with him. And Pat was like, gladly. And meanwhile, Pat's a genius. He's the guy I learned the most from in my entire career about how to put together a finish. I call him Yoda. Uh, and he really was, you know, he strapped me up. Uh, I strapped him on his, on my back, like Luke Skywalker and ran through the, through the, through the Dagobah system with Pat as my, as my guide. So um, he, he was the one that usually did the main events and he was the guy that I love working with the most, uh, no, no matter what. Before we move on from the Kane last man standing match, the finish had like uh, a wall of like 20 barrels welded together that, theoretically come down on Kane. Meltzer would be pretty critical of that and say it was a fairly corny finish that nobody could take seriously. What do you remember about the finish of that? Uh, it was Shane McMahon's finish. He had the idea of uh, somebody getting barrels pulled over on top of them. And so they built this whole 
stage set made of barrels, like 15 barrels all kind of welded together. So it was like a wall. And that was uh, that was Shane's idea that I just pushed this wall over on top of Kane. But of course, like every great horror movie at the end, he sticks his hand up through the through the barrels and, and, and waves it around. But that was a total Shane idea. Well, 2001 is going to be a different story for you. The 2001 Royal Rumble, it's you and your buddy Benoit in an intercontinental title match. But there's a ladder involved. Uh, obviously, the, the bar has been set very high with ladder matches by that point in January of 01. But you guys steal the show. Uh, four and three quarters. Meltzer thought it was the best thing on the show. What do you remember about that sort of forgotten ladder match from Royal Rumble 01? Uh, just that. It's a forgotten ladder match. I think if you want to look at the great ladder matches in history, I believe that that one's one of them. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that you know none of Chris's matches are, are around. They've all kind of been erased. But uh, also, too, nowadays when people think ladder match, they think you know Young Bucks versus Lucha Brothers. Unbelievable pulls, spectacle and super exciting. I remember Chris and I that night were like, let's have the best ladder match in all time of all time. Sure. Cool. What can we do? Well, uh, everyone wants to have a ladder match where you're jumping off it and falling off it. Why don't we have a ladder match where you just beat people up with it? Like use it as a weapon. Like it is. And most of that match was constructed around using the, the ladder as a weapon rather than as a climbing device. And that was specifically the way we wanted to do that match. And I think as a result, if you can watch it, knowing that Chris Ben was in it, I think it's a textbook match, and it's something that I took a lot of the spots from, a lot of the ideas from when I had uh, my, ma- my uh, ladder match with Shawn Michaels a, f- a few years later for the World Championship in Portland. Um, we did the same thing. We used it more of a, uh, of a weapon than actually something to, to jump and fall off of. And I remember at one point I was going to do the uh, Bret Hart uh, figure four around the post to kind of mess up Chris's legs so he couldn't walk, and Vince came out and saw me doing it. He's like, no, you can't do that. Uh, I won't let you. And I was like, oh, okay. Because it's too, uh, it's too connected with Bret Hart. It's like, bro, Bret hasn't worked here in eight years. No, you can't. So then Chris was like, what if we do a, a, a Walls of Jericho on top of the ladder? And I was, what do you mean? Like, we'll do a Walls of Jericho on top of the ladder. I said, well, how can I do that? Like, there's nowhere for me to put my legs and there's no real countertop. And he's like, no, no, no. We bridge over top of the ladder and then you like put your legs across. Like if you go and look it up, you'll see that at the, when we got it done, the ladder is on top. Benoit's legs are facing out, and then he's bent over the back of the ladder like a U. And I have his legs, and I, I reach down and I reach across and put my legs in between his arms. And so you see, it's the classic image of us completely horizontal on top of a ladder. Uh, with me giving him a, a Walls of Jericho. Still one of the best moments from my career that people just went nuts for because they'd never seen it before. Uh, and that's what I think most about that match. It's a great ladder match, more about the weapon aspect of it than the climbing. Next up, No Way Out is going to be a four-way. You retain over Eddie, Chris Benoit, and X-Pac. But not too terribly long after that, you start a feud with William Regal. And it becomes some of the more iconic raw scenes from the year with uh, William Regal drinking the tea that you had just peed in and uh as fallout from that you would even get a chance to dress up as doink the clown i know this might not have been exactly what you had in mind for wrestlemania but this is fun stuff it was man and that's the thing like regal um what, what he what he didn't have as a worker and it kind of is is his later years in the business he had everything for personality and he was very easy to work with because of that because when someone's legitimately over that's all you need. And the best facials, like when he drinks the pee, you, you'll never see. 
<laughs> you'll never see better facials. And once again, like as much as you want to talk about it, and I'm getting specific of being kind of a little bit not angry, but kind of like, oh man, I shouldn't have lost that much and this that but they always gave me good stuff to do. I mean, at this point Vince knew I could talk and knew that I was a goofball character as well. So pissing in the tea was totally something Jericho would do. And it actually got me over really well at that point in time, especially the way that he sold it. You know, <laughs> I remember one time we had a, when he, him and Tajiri were like the wacky, you know, he was the, he was the, uh, the GM and Tajiri was his assistant. And this is so stupid, but it just made me laugh so hard. We were in New York city and uh, it was Jericho and a mystery partner against Regal and, and Tajiri. And it's like, and you have to find a mystery partner. Well, I've already found one. Who could it be? The Phantom of the Opera? <laughs> and then Tajiri starts doing it too. <laughs> and they're both like laughing like little kids or whatever because of course the Phantom of the Opera's on Broadway and then we're, we're in New York City. But they were so good at that sort of stuff and then uh, it just made it that much more fun to work with them. So even though the matches weren't, weren't classic, I remember the WrestleMania match, they only gave us about seven minutes. The, the buildup of it was a lot of fun. And I always liked working with, with, with Regal as well because once again, you would just beat the crap out of each other and then have a, have, have, have a beer afterwards. What did you think of the creative that had you dress up as uh, Doink the Clown and do a run in and put Regal in the walls of Jericho? Well, the reason why they had me do that was because they had a gimmick battle royal, and that's what it was called. So they had all the gimmicks come back at WrestleMania and they had you know shown Doink or, or talked about Doink or maybe even Doink was on the show the week before. So it wasn't just like this random Doink appearance. I do remember walking backstage in Cleveland. This is when Sean, uh, Sean Michaels, before he went away for the last time and really got cleaned up, uh, he was at the venue and he was just out of his mind. And he's like, hey, they got you playing doink now? And I'm like, no, it's just for the night. He goes, no, I don't like it. It's a terrible gimmick. Don't play doink. Yeah, it's, it's okay, Sean. It's just, it's just for the night. Don't do it, man. It's going to kill your career. Don't let him make you into doink. And then he walked away. <laughs> he couldn't grasp the fact that I was just dressing up as doink for one night. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, uh, not too terribly long after this, are still <laughs> William Regal at a backlash pay-per-view. But this time, well, it's a bit of a gimmick match. It's the Duchess of Queensberry match. Oh, my gosh. Great. Yeah, um, so Sue Aitchison, anybody that knows WWE knows she's one of the longest employees. She's a saint. She's she's done every job in the company. Now she's kind of the uh, liaison for uh, for Make-A-Wish and that sort of thing. She's the best ever, and, and but she's in on the joke. She knows how crazy Vince is. She knows that whatever, and they decided that she's the Duchess of Queensbury. And the gimmick of the Duchess of Queensbury match was that everything that I did – the Duchess would change the rules because she was in charge. So, you know, if I beat Regal with a dropkick, then she, the, the Duchess says, no dropkicks allowed in the match. And then I beat him with a body slam. The Duchess says, it's now best two out of three falls or whatever. So it was so ridiculous because, and there's you know, no one knows what the rules are. We don't know what the rules are. The Duchess doesn't know what the rules are. She's sitting there in a freaking Queen Elizabeth outfit I was super hungover because I went out in Chicago with my friends the night before. That shows you how, how seriously I was taking this match. The, the one thing I remember that was genius and super funny was um, <laughs> Regal. I, I drop kick uh, uh, him from behind. No, sorry. I, I close on him over the top and then I drop kick him to the floor and then I baseball slide him to where he takes a bump right in the Duchess of Queensbury's crotch. And he came up with like, you think the, the, the pee-pee face was great? 
the Duchess of Queensbury like falling into her lap uh, face is even better. The in-ring action for the next pay-per-view. It's Judgment Day. You're going to team with your old pal Benoit, and you guys win what is essentially a tag team gauntlet match. You run through everybody, but that's not the story. The story is the match the next night, May 21st on Raw. Uh, this is the famous tag match with you guys, Steve Austin and Triple H. Uh, I'm sure that's been a match you've talked about quite a bit. Yeah. Um, once again, it's, uh, you know, people have said it's, it's the best Raw match of all time. Whether, whether you, you believe that or not, uh, it was a damn good match. It was one of those moments similar to when I won the title the first time uh, in state college. And the idea was uh, Austin and Hunter were uh, the two man power trip and they were kind of taking over the whole company. It's when they had that brilliant idea of making Austin a heel, which really never took, but it worked when he was with Hunter because people genuinely hated Hunter and they needed baby faces. So they were bringing me and Chris up to, to do that. And it's one of those famous matches but it's so crazy because at the time it was like you know whatever a five-star match is until the last couple minutes when hunter legitimately tore his quad he he came in from behind he hit me from behind he fell down uh, we continued our match and i remember the ref saying hunter's hurt and i go over to the the announce table i'm supposed to put him in the walls of jericho and he goes um you know i i, I tore my quad and I said, do you still want to do this? And he said, do it. So I turn him over and think about what the walls of Jericho is. It's a Boston crab. And imagine having a torn quad. You know, it couldn't have felt good, but he still wanted to do it. And then at the end, he had to come in to hit Austin with a sledgehammer. I move. Benoit takes him out. I hit Austin with the lion salt. One, two, three. How he was able to continue that. And if anybody ever says, okay, maybe there was a time when Hunter wanted to bury me or, or, or thought about burying me. If he wanted to bury us, he could have just not have done the finish and we just do something else. He, he went out of his way to make those spots with a torn quad. And that to me was like, this guy, A, is super tough. And B, whether he likes me personally or not, he's a pro. And this is the job that he had to do and he did it. So I thought it was really, uh, really cool. It, it kind of put a damper on the match. We went backstage and, you know, usually you want to have a beer and, and celebrate but one of our guys is down and out and you didn't know how severe he is. And finally the next day he's out for six to nine months. It kind of killed our championship celebration. And quite honestly, it killed Benoit and Jericho's push as baby faces as well. What was the plan? You know, had he not been hurt, what would have been the plan coming out of that? What I heard the day before, cause there was a, a pay-per-view. So I think in Sacramento or something. And this match was in Anaheim, I believe was that, uh, we were going to win the titles and then branch off. So it'd be Jericho versus Austin to feud for the world title and uh, H versus Benoit to feud for the Inter Intercontinental title. Because at the time, Hunter was IC champ and Austin was was world champ. And that's the way it was supposed to go from what I heard, which if you look at what was going on at the time, it certainly would make sense. Jericho versus Austin as a heel for the world title would have been massive for me because we had done a bunch of house show matches. We did one in Winnipeg that did the biggest gate in Winnipeg history of me challenging Austin for the title. Uh, I lost, but it was one of those nights where, you know, everything, all the stars aligned and we had whatever our gate was. And it, it showed me that we could really make some money with this, but everything changed when, when Hunter got hurt. It's pretty crazy to think about because, you know, that was maybe the original idea, but a few days later, and this is almost below the radar, 
you and Benoit win a TLC match over the Dudleys, the Hardys, Edge and Christian. So, I mean, this is a huge TLC that, again, nobody talks about. And it's on regular TV just a few days after the match with Triple H and Hunter or Triple H and Austin. Yeah, well, I mean, the reason why we had that match, uh, the the TLC match, was whatever the storyline was for the next day was all revolved around Hunter and Chris and and Steve and and, and Chris. So they had to rewrite the show. And I remember we got on the plane. I could be wrong. I think we were in San Jose is where Hunter got hurt. Exactly. So, yeah, we did did the pay-per-view in Sacramento, Raw in San Jose, and then we were doing uh, Anaheim. For, for 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 SmackDown, when we landed, we got off the plane with four hours to go before the show because it's east, uh, West Coast time. So if the show's supposed to start at eight, we're supposed to start at five. We landed, let's say noon, and we all got a text. That you guys are all in a TLC match tonight. It was uh, you know me and Chris and and uh, uh, I think the Hardys were in there and, and maybe Edge and Christian and whoever the hell was in it. You guys can look it up. We we used to call it the Forgotten TLC. Because no right. one ever talks about it when you talk about these great TLC matches. Of course, now more than ever because Benoit was in it. But they changed it all around because of that. So we had to put together this great classic TLC match, which are very intricate and very hard to do. And usually when you have one, you have weeks to prepare. And we had hours. And we had a great, great match, man. And it's actually funny because that's the match where Benoit basically, I think he did the the, the, the headbutt off the top turnbuckle to the floor through a table and really messed up his neck which ended up having him have to be out for for an injury as well. But that was all a very last-minute thing that uh, stemmed from the fact that Hunter got hurt. The next Raw, again, another audible. Uh, you win the hardcore title from Big Show, but immediately lose it to uh, Rhino at the top of the ramp. But that show would end with you having Austin and the Lion Tamer and Austin tapping out. Uh, it feels like, okay, we're going to do something here, and it looks like it's going to be Austin- Jericho at King of the Ring, but there's another audible call. This time it's to insert Chris Benoit in there. And Steve Austin winds up retaining. Were you disappointed to see that you weren't going to have a singles match with Austin at King I, of the Ring? I was. I was disappointed in the whole scenario because if you look at this, me and Chris were baby faces once again, and they needed baby faces to work with Steve. And for whatever reason, Vince lost faith in me pretty much instantly, then brought in Benoit and lost faith in Benoit pretty much instantly. Because if you look through that time frame, Spike Dudley got involved and Spike Dudley ended up in a little bit of a feud with Steve Austin. So even though Benoit and Jericho are challenging for the title, Spike's got all the promo time and Spike's got all the steam. It was really, really weird. I remember thinking like the second week after the match was announced, I said to Chris, like, we're done. Like he's already given up on us because he's got Spike in there doing all this stuff and not not us. And uh, I was really disappointed with it. I thought the match was the shits. The dynamic is terrible. Two baby faces. You know, trying to fight a, a heel for the title, and Vince didn't want Chris and I to have any uh, 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 disconnection or any issues between us. So basically, Austin beat the two of us, the the so called top babyfaces, clean. And I just I thought it would have been much better off if they just would have stuck with me and Steve. You could have had had Steve beat me clean, whatever. Then he could have gone off with Chris, done whatever you're going to do with that. But at least we would have had a chance to go one-on-one with Austin as the champion. And even if as a babyface, if you lose the champion, it's still a title match. It's still a main event. But Vince didn't see it that way and didn't see uh, Jericho and Benoit as being main event babyfaces, apparently. Well, next up is the Invasion pay-per-view. And I think most people remember you were in the 10-man tag. Um, What do you remember about the Invasion show? And were you just glad it was over? 
No, I thought the Invasion show was great. I love the fact that I was included. Like back then, to, to be, you know, um, I, I don't know the, the exact lineup of, of all the guys, but to be in that match at all was was a huge honor because it showed that once again I was one of the the top guys and still kind of on the the spectrum of of once again having that title again. Like Vince said, you're going to have it again at some point, anyways. Don't worry about it. So to be in the main event with uh, you know all the all the guys that were there, I'm looking at it right now. It's Booker T, Bubba Dudley, Diamond Dallas Page, Devon, and Rhino versus. Okay, so that that team is what it is. It's kind of you know a dog's breakfast. But look at the look at the our team: Jericho, Kane, Kurt, Stone Cold, and the Undertaker. I mean, to be included as with one of those guys, that's huge. You know, that's huge for me. So I was very excited about it. And it's funny because you see this quite a bit on Instagram and Twitter where people will be like, you know, 90s Wrestling Daily or, you know, old school WWE, and they'll show all these interviews that we did where, I mean, it's great stuff. It's me and Angle arguing with Stone Cold, and then Kane comes in, and then Undertaker comes in and yells at all of us, then Vince comes in and yells. It's like, that's proving your worth. Anytime you're in a storyline with Vince McMahon or The Undertaker or Austin, and you're holding your own both in the promos and in the ring, that just solidified the fact that I wasn't uh, the drizzling shits as, as Vince had told me, not even a year before or whatever it was. So I was I was thrilled to death to be in that. And I remember something else too. When I got my, uh, my payoff for that, it was the biggest payoff I've ever gotten for a non-WrestleMania uh, ever was from that match. From a 10-man tag, I got more money for that than anything else besides a couple of WrestleManias. Well, after this uh, big 10-man tag, you're at SummerSlam with Rhino. Uh, I know he's your old, your old pal, but are you disappointed that you're at SummerSlam with Rhino after being in the main event here the month before? Well, I mean, once again, you're looking at the storyline that, that they're telling, and this is where I would agree with, with Bruce. Just because you're not in the last match, if you look where Rhino was the month before, he was on Team you know, WCW, and I was on Team WWF. So... You know, I mean, I guess I could have worked with Booker T or DDP, but I probably would have rather have worked with Rhino at the time because he was younger and way easier to work with. And don't forget, they were pushing the hell out of him with Stephanie. I didn't like the match too much. I sli- I remember I slipped off the ropes a couple times. I think I had a little bit of a concussion because I, I came up with this genius idea of jumping off the top rope to the floor like I'm going to give Rhino an axe handle and him spearing me in the air. It sounds great on paper or if you're a video game guy, but if you actually do it in real life, it knocked the shit out of me. And I think that might have something to do with why I slipped off the ropes a few times. I'm I'm usually not that guy. But uh, as far as a matchup goes and the position we had, I wasn't mad about it because Rhino was being pushed as as a top guy and he was actually very fun to work with. Uh, Drives you crazy going over all the spots over and over again. But he's like a guy that wants to go over it a thousand times where I, I got it after three but um, but in the ring, he, he he always was good, and he still is to this day. Next up, Unforgiven. This time, you're in there with Rob Van Dam, another ECW original. He's going to retain his hardcore title. Uh, Rob Van Dam doesn't always have the best reputation for being the easiest guy to work with. Uh, as, as far as bell to bell, maybe the rumor and innuendo is he could be a little stiff. Meltzer loved it, though. Gave it a four stars. What did you think of the match that you had at uh, Unforgiven with RVD? That's really cool. I, I don't recall that actual match, but I always had good matches with Rob in any way, shape, or form. But newsflash, he was very stiff. Uh, almost, <laughs> I don't know if, if reckless is the term, but when he when he throws those kicks up at you, you don't really care. <laughs> 
And I think uh, I have more stitches in my head, courtesy of Rob Van Dam, than anybody else ever uh, in the history of the business that I've worked. So um, that kind of puts a little perspective on it. But yeah, he 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 worked very stiff, very hard. He worked. Rob is Rob. He didn't want any suggestions. And I remember we had a, a couple issues over the years when Vince literally told me, "Can you tell him how to? Can you teach him how to work as a heel? Uh, can you teach him how to sell?" And Rob didn't like being told what to do. He's he's Rob Van Dam, and for better or for worse, he's going to do things his way. And part of that is being very stiff. But having said that, I also had great chemistry with him and uh, always enjoyed working with him as long as he didn't uh, put stitches in my head. Well, after losing to Rob twice in a week, you find yourself programmed with The Rock. You're going to be teaming with The Rock to take on RVD and Shane on our... And eventually it leads to a singles match at No Mercy for the WCW world title with The Rock. And this has got to feel like the big break, the big moment you've been looking for after uh, thinking you were going to get the match, the singles match in June and King of the Ring with Austin. You finally get a singles match with The Rock here in October. Meltzer loved it, gave it four and a half stars. And it's a crowning moment, probably the biggest moment in your career up to this point. Would you agree? Is this when I won the title? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. By far. Um, I always had great chemistry with The Rock, except for the first match we ever had, which sucked. But other than that, Rock's when people say who who's the the best guy you ever worked with, he's one of them. You know, and people forget about that because he's so big in Hollywood. You you don't remember the fact that he was awesome in the ring, and I was one of the few guys that could go toe to toe with him on the microphone. So that made our matches even better. I think um, winning the world title for him also. I remember afterwards I did a, a promo for WWE magazine or for the website. And I said, you know, I dedicate this to Eric Bischoff. He can fuck off because I remember when I left, he said, well, Jericho will never be a star in WWE. And, you know, it was a different time. Both of us are different people now. And I love Eric. But at the time I had a lot of animosity towards him. Um, and when I won the title, I remember thinking like, damn, fuck yeah, I did it. Even though Bischoff thought I couldn't. Uh, I also remember rock that day was, doing a bunch of other stuff, which he always had to do promos and pre-tapes and whatever he was doing. And we didn't start working on putting that match together until the show started. Now you think we had two and a half hours. That's not a long time, especially with the rock. Cause he, I'm not going to say overthought things, but he's very meticulous in the way he did things. And I remember basically going over that until it was time for us to go to gorilla and just saying, Hey man, let's just make up the rest of it out there. And rock does not like making it up out there but we had no choice. We ran out of time and it worked out really good. I remember the beginning of that match was mostly me just calling stuff to him. And then we had a really great finish put together. Uh, and one thing about the rock, he always, he always put me over. He always put guys over. He was not one of those guys that would bury you or that would make you look bad or worried about when you're losing, at least not with me. Whenever it was time for him to, to, to put me over, he did and did it right and did it uh, did it well. He legitimately put somebody over, not just let them get a, a one, two, three on them, which is a big difference. Brock wins the bell back on the November 5th Raw, but the big story is uh, Survivor Series, and that's where we're finally going to get, I guess, the blow-off of the invasion angle. We've got you know Team Alliance on one side. It's another big 10-man team, Team WWF, Team Alliance. Did you prefer this one to the original one in Invasion, or... Well, um, well I, I think, once again, it shows that I'm, you know, at the top. I'm, I'm in the mix as a, as a top guy. And 
you know, it might seem kind of funny today because, you know, Chris Jericho is Chris Jericho is, but at, back then every little, every little positioning was, was victory. So I knew that I did my job well enough in the first 10 man for them to put me in the second one. And I think this one was a little bit more star power. Cause I just got it up right here. And team WWF is Jericho, big show, Kane, the rock and undertaker. And now Austin has turned heel. So it's Booker T, Kurt Van Dam, Shane and Austin. So, you can see the star power is really ramped up. And, you know, now I'm working against Steve Austin and, and with The Rock, with the idea being that I'm going uh, off with The Rock afterwards. So uh, I did enjoy this match a lot. And once again, lots of great promos with Big Show and Kane and Rock and Taker and Vince. So, you know, you're working in the top position. And, and this feud drew, which... I think sometimes it's forgotten. Like the invasion of the Survivor Series did some big business. Uh, of course, they ended it quickly. I don't blame Vince after years of being plagued by WCW and almost you know losing to them at one point. I'm sure he wanted to kill it as quick as he could and probably said, I don't care if it costs me a few bucks. I don't want to promote this. But people got into it. And even though none of those guys were really WCW guys, with the exception of Booker T, uh, it worked. Not too long after this, it's announced that there's going to be a four-man tournament to crown the first undisputed champion of Vengeance. And uh, it's going to be you and The Rock on one side, Austin and Angle on the other. I guess we should address the elephant in the room. It's often been speculated and rumored that had Hunter not been injured, you wouldn't have had that spot. He would have. What say you? Well, I mean, that's really, it's like saying, you know, if, if Cliff Burton wouldn't have died, Metallica never would have made the Black Album. Like, you can't say that because if Hunter hadn't have got hurt, they might never had the the four-way match. It's not like they had that penciled in to do an undisputed match for, for the title, uh, you know, a tournament for the title in December. If they did, I'd be very surprised because it would seem to me that once Hunter went down, the whole thing had to be changed, right? I mean, it did. So... I think the storyline from the invasion to the alliance and the whole thing was I turned on the rock to hopefully make the WWF team lose. And that didn't work, which causes rock and I to go off on each other. And, and once again, going on the auspices that I can't win the big one. And that might've been the storyline leading into to St. Louis where I beat him for the WCW title. But that was the thing. You can't win the big one. You can't win the big one. That was his whole basis of his promos because the way WWE had booked me. Yeah. I couldn't win the big one until I did when I, uh, you know, like you said, I beat rock uh, for the title. Then we had the, the survivor series. So listen, if Hunter was around at that point in time, yeah, he might've been in, in it or they might've not even done the tournament at all, but he wasn't around. I was, and I was put into the tournament. And it's obviously the biggest day in your career. I mean, the vengeance 2001 show, not only do you beat the rock, but you beat Austin the Rock match goes 19 minutes, five seconds, gets four stars, three and a quarter stars for Meltzer for the main event with you in Austin. When did you know the creative? When did you know you were going to win? Um, uh, well, it's funny because I the, they announced the tournament, and then I worked with Austin in a singles match on Raw, let's say a week or two later, and he's beating me clean. And I remember going to talk to Heyman, who I think was booking at the time, and saying, like, does this make sense to you that I'm losing to Austin? Uh, you know, we have this tournament coming up. Like, he's like, just do it. And I said, why don't you just do it? Trust me. I'm like, oh, okay. Glimmer of, of hope. Like, what does that mean? And then I remember Pat came up to me and said, have you talked to Vince yet? And I said, no. And he said, oh, well, then I'll let him tell you. I go, Pat, what are you talking about? 
He goes, well, I'll let him tell you. Like, Dude, you can't do that. He goes, well, the, the idea for right now is for you to go over. And I was like, really? Then I saw Kurt Angle, who we used to call Canary Kurt, because whenever he heard something, he would tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, uh, yeah, you know, I've been told that I'm going over. And I was like, well, I didn't say it to him, but I was told that I'm going over. So it's one of those things where I don't know for sure. I do know this. The day I got to San Diego, I sat in catering. And this is back when Vince used to eat in catering with all the boys. And he was standing kind of close to me with Undertaker. They were getting some food. And I was within earshot, and they knew it. And Vince said, hey, Take, you know how I know the business is going down the toilet? How, Vince? We're putting the title on Jericho. Blah. And then he walks away. And that's how I found out that I was becoming the first ever undisputed champion. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, it's like most people when they win the title, like for the first time, they'll have their wife in the crowd or their parents. I had nobody in the crowd because I didn't know about it till like three hours before. How do you celebrate your big win? You're getting a win over the two biggest stars yeah. in the industry. Uh, it's got to be pretty. Uh, it's pretty special, huh? I'm, I'm assuming you know the story for this, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I win the title. Uh, the last match with Austin, where you said it was like three and a quarter stars, it was so overbooked. I just watched it back to the day Flair is out there and Vince is out there and uh, uh, Booker T is involved and there's a, like a different Earl Hebner's out there or some of the referee. And it's just like, I remember Austin just being not freaked out, but like, I don't remember what this finish is. There's too much going on. And I said, I have it. So I'll call it to you, even though I had to remember the rock match as well. But that was easy. We could have literally have a four-star match in our sleep. And this is back in the days when, you weren't getting a four-star match just by lacing your boots on. Like nowadays, a four-star match is almost a bad match. But with Steve, it was a little bit harder because it was so contrived. And Steve and I didn't have the chemistry that Rock and I had. It's just that's just the way it is sometimes. But um, I win the title. Uh, Vince comes out. All the streamers come down. And I remember the San Diego crowd was just dead silent. Like they couldn't believe, like, really? They put it on that guy? Like, and I think that's why they did it because I was the, the 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 weakest of the four, and then I walked through Gorilla and everyone's gone, including Vince, who was just standing with me three minutes ago. Where did he go? He's gone, and no one's there to congratulate me. No one's there to say hi. They all just split. And uh, I remember Roddy Piper told me, you know, it's it's being being in the main event is the loneliest position on the card because when you come out, everyone's gone. They use your match to to beat the traffic, right? So um, I drive down the road from San Diego to Anaheim. I go check in at a hotel. I get in at five to midnight and the guy behind the counter, his name tag said Regis J. O'Rourke Jr. And I'm like, that's one of the worst names I've ever heard. And he, <laughs> and he said, Junior? Like his dad <laughs> decided to put him through the same shit that 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 senior did. And so I go, hey man, like... Um, uh, is is there any food open? He's like, no, they close at midnight. And I'm like, well, it's 10 to midnight. He's like, what's closed? I'm like, uh, okay, well, you said midnight. I said midnight. And I said, is there anything else? He said, there's pizza. All right, cool. Show my ID, get my card, check in, go upstairs, order a pizza. 20 minutes later, half an hour later, they call me. They don't come to the rooms. You have to come down and get it. So I walk down to get my pizza, walk back up to my room and realize I left my keys inside the room. I'm locked out. I walk back down. I talk, talk to old Regis J. O'Rourke Jr. Say, uh, I left my keys in the room. Can you let me in? He's like, do you have any ID? I said, no, I left it in the room. He goes, well, then how do I know that you're you? And I said, well, you just checked me in like 20 minutes ago. He's like, well, how do I know that? I'm like, what am I, a 
clone now, an alien, you know, this invasion of the body snatchers. Like, it's me. And he's like, well, how do, uh, how do I know that? I'm like arguing with this guy. And finally he goes, okay, I'll come up to the room, but you got to let me go in first. I'm like, all right. We go up to the room. He open, He goes to He goes to put the keys. Like, you have to tell me what's inside the room. I said, oh, really? I said, you're going to go inside that room. You're going to see two championship belts. And you're going to fucking open the door and let me in because I'm the undisputed champion, bitch. <laughs> you know, dude, and I'm not that guy, but I was so mad. He walked in and he said, well, checks out. The titles are in there. Left him out. I put the I put the pizza. I took a, a one bite. I put the pizza in my bed. I reached over to take my shoes off. And when I picked, when I sat up, my arm hit the pizza. It flipped over onto the floor, uh, topping side down. I picked it up and ate dusty, uh, <laughs> dirty pizza at a freaking Holiday Inn with Regis J. O'Rourke downstairs. That's how you celebrate being the disputed champion. If that's not the uh, the best way to end the podcast, I don't know what is, man. Thanks for giving me an opportunity to come on and let you tell your side of the story. And obviously, this is the companion piece for something to wrestle, which comes out every Friday at noon. You can check it out and. It all, it's all well that ends well. I mean, yeah. going finishing this story with beating not just The Rock, but Steve Austin on the same night and the undisputed champion eating floor pizza, bitch. Come on. <laughs> and, you know, like I said, it's something like, like people say, like, is it the greatest night of your career? It's not the greatest, but it's definitely one of the biggest. It's like winning an Oscar. You know, at that point in time to get the undisputed championship, it was a big deal. And no matter what happened, we can we can continue the story on another podcast, whatever happened afterwards. It was what it was. But at that moment in time, you know, Vince McMahon thought I was valuable enough to make me the first undisputed champion in wrestling history. And it's something they can never take that away. It's like having a record uh, in, in, in sports where you're the, you know, the first overtime goal that was ever scored by the LA Kings was Ted Irvin, my dad. And he said, it's a record they can never take away. There'll only be one first time. I'm glad you mentioned that because I've often wondered that, you know, I know the relationship you have with your dad and, I was fortunate enough to see you guys at Wrestle Kingdom earlier this year, and right. I know that he's enjoyed some of your success. And when you find out that you're going to get this big win, obviously he's not where he can just drive down to the building and see it live. But you call and give him a heads up that, hey, Dad, you don't want to miss the pay-per-view tonight. Yeah, it, it was one of those. Even he wasn't there, I said, you got to check this out. I never really tell anybody anything, but I'm sure he kind of figured it out once I told him you got to watch it. But in subsequent times, he's been in the crowd. My wife's been in the crowd with one title, so I kind of made up for it. But like I said, I mean, you go through that day. There's never been someone that's told they're going to win the title in such a fashion and never uh, been somebody that uh, celebrated after they won the title in such a fashion. So definitely uh, a, a typical ups and downs in the life of Chris Jericho. Well, thanks for letting me uh, come in for the ride, man. Appreciate the opportunity to talk old wrestling with you. And uh, best of luck in full gear. But I got to tell you, I'm, I'm pulling for the other guy. hope that's okay. Go after yourself, Conrad, you son of a bitch. <laughs>